You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. Well, I never expected to be interviewing an actual sixties radical lawyer on uncommentary, but here we are. Uh, my guest today lived through the 60s as a young lawyer in Chicago and knew uh, and was involved with the Black Panther Party there in Chicago in particular, a young man named Fred Hampton, who eventually was killed in a joint operation by the FBI and the Chicago Police Department. If you're familiar with the movie uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which came out on HBO Max uh, in 2021, I think, um, that's Fred Hampton's story, at least the, uh, the latter part of his life, which only, uh, which ended at 21 years, uh, as a result of the activity of the government. Uh, <clears throat> this is a fascinating interview. If, especially if you like, uh, 1960s history, if you listened to my interview with Julian Zelizer about 1968, uh, early on in this podcast, probably about season two or first part of season three, um, uh, I, I'm fascinated by that period of American history because of all of the revolutionary talk and all of the dissatisfaction, discontentment in the country that was going on. Uh, Jeff Haas uh, lived in that, and he uh, lived and breathed that he he called himself uh, at that point a revolutionary. So um, this is a really great interview. I hope you enjoy it. This is uh, this is like listening to one of your uncles that was in the war or something like that, tell stories about that, or uh, some uh, uncle who was involved in a major historical event tell stories about that, or an aunt who was involved in something. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. This is one of the this is one of my favorite interviews that I've done in 90-plus episodes of Uncommentary. Uh, this is Jeff Haas. Well, when I bought the book, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, how the FBI and the Chicago police murdered a black Panther. I did not expect the author, uh, to have been a contemporary, but here I am with Jeffrey Haas, who is the author of the book. And, uh, he was a contemporary of, uh, Fred Hampton and the black Panther movement in Chicago and some other things that we'll get to in just a second. So this is really a cool thing because, and I don't mean to make you sound old here, Jeff, but, uh, you're only a little older than me, so I, I shouldn't even uh, go that route. But when most people that are under 60, which I am, 
think of the 60s, we kind of think it's like the 20s or something. Like it's so far back now, we don't really place who was alive then and what was going on then. And so uh, to be able to talk to you today is really, really cool. So Jeffrey Haas, man, I am so happy to welcome you to Uncommentary. Well, thank you, Marty. I'm glad to be here. So um, you're probably not a household name for most of my listeners. Uh, why don't you tell a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, interestingly enough, I was born and grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, Woo-woo. a place stand you're familiar with. Yep. And uh, my family, uh, my dad was a lawyer. He actually worked with John Lewis and my mom uh, was a progressive also, and she helped integrate uh, the Biltmore Hotel, which was the first hotel to integrate in Atlanta. Wow. I left Atlanta in 1960, went to the University of Michigan, and ended up at the University of Chicago Law School. And I think that I became much more radicalized then in the 60s, where there was so much going on around the Vietnam War, around the Civil Rights Movement. And Chicago was the heart of many things, mm. uh, particularly Dr. King had come and marched in Chicago to integrate it. Uh, we had the Democratic Convention in Chicago. So when I, I wasn't sure, I went to law school because at that point I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. When I graduated, I took a job at Legal Aid in Chicago in 1967. Mm. But things were moving very rapidly. Uh, When Dr. King was assassinated in April of 68, um, I went down to the police station and and represented young black kids who were getting picked up on on the streets Mm -hmm. uh, when there was a rebellion in response to uh, Dr. King's murder. And there I met a man named Dennis Cunningham, uh, another lawyer who volunteered that night when most of the white community was kind of hunkered down. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, as things developed, uh, there were a lot of movement things happening in Chicago. Uh, As I mentioned, the Democratic Convention was there. The SDS, Students for Democratic Society, was there. A group called the Young Lords Organization, a Puerto Rican street gang that became political. Um, The Young Patriots, actually a white Appalachian gang. And in the late 60s, chapter of the black Panthers started in Mm. chicago it just is funny to hear that there was a white appalachian gang in chicago yeah well they call themselves the young patriots and they were a lot young kids who had come from kentucky and west virginia and uh even though they wore confederate flags they were very uh treated mistreated uh, almost or in many ways like black people, they had poor housing, the police, it was a lot of police brutality, mm-hmm. poor medical care and so forth. So I'll get into this a little later, but they actually ended up forming a coalition with the Black Panthers uh, under the leadership of Fred Hampton. So uh, now we're, wow, that's, <laughs> you lived a life before you were like 22 or 23 years old. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> And yes. 
So um, just to set a little bit of context, a lot of my listeners will have seen probably the Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which you you have a different name for that in your book. You call it the Activist 8 or something like that. I forget the exact name. The conspiracy Trial is what we call it. Okay. Yeah. All right. And um, what caught my attention about that was uh, that you represented some of the people that were protesting outside of the courtroom. And I can, in my mind, I can see that scene from the movie where people are coming into the court and there's protesters outside and they're skirmishing with the police or whatever. And, um, and you actually represented. And when I was reading that part of the book, I was like, this, this is like, this is like a biography that's taking place in real time in my mind. So, um, but you, you eventually met Fred Hampton, so I want to really talk about him um, a lot uh, during our time together. So um, talk about how you first heard of him, because I remember that you knew of him before you ever met him in person, and then the unique circumstance that led you to spend time with him the night before he was killed. Yes. Well, as I mentioned, uh Fred Hampton and the Panthers had started in Chicago in 68. I and other lawyers were some other lawyers were working at legal aid and Fred came and to Dennis Cunningham, the man I had met the the night Dr. King was killed and said, Dennis, we're getting, uh, uh, the police are harassing us. Every time we sell a newspaper, we get arrested. Every time we step out and participate in a demonstration, we're being arrested and harassed. We need a people's law office to defend the Panthers and other movement groups. So that was Fred Hampton that really pushed us mm-hmm. to form something called the People's Law Office. And three of us came from legal aid where we couldn't do criminal cases and started the PLO or People's Law Office in the summer of 1969. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And then um, you had an interaction. Was it? Did it have to do with um, the building? They were going to buy a building and you were doing the legal work for that? Yeah. Well, so we started in the, in the summer of 69. And at that particular time, Fred Hampton was the very powerful and charismatic leader of the Black Panthers in Chicago. He was a tremendous speaker. He spoke outside the Conspiracy 7 or Chicago 7 trial when Bobby Seale was bound and Mm -hmm. gagged. And his description of that made him a national figure as well as a local figure. And he rose to prominence when the Panthers were very popular in Chicago. They started a Breakfast for Children program. They started a health clinic. Uh, They sold a lot of newspapers. And, of course, they were very militant, and they had a very strong militant uh, rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And it was very appealing to young black people. Uh, And so from the they opened their office in the fall of 1668, and we were representing them in 69 in some of their cases when they were getting harassed. Um, There were also, they had formed a coalition also with a group called the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican group that started as a street gang and ended up fighting gentrification. The Young Patriots was in Uptown, and as I mentioned, an Mm -hmm. Appalachian group that was uh, having facing similar conditions to people, some people in the black community. And they formed this coalition called the Rainbow Coalition. And all the members were getting harassed and our office was kept busy representing members of these groups. Uh, 
in the early part of 1969, Fred went to trial. He was accused of holding down a, uh, a vendor and passing out 71 bars of ice cream to kids. And he went to trial on that, uh, a case that normally would have been a slap on the wrist, perhaps probation, community service. But we had a very ambitious prosecutor who was prosecuting Fred, who called the Panthers a gang. Mm. So in spring of 69, when Fred was convicted uh, and the judge said, I'm going to give him probation. But between then and when the sentencing happened, Hammerhand put a lot of pressure on him. So Fred Hampton got a sentence of two to five years in the prison in Menard sent to the prison in Southern Illinois. Now stop for pause for just a second. Uh, you mentioned Hanrahan. I want to make sure everybody knows uh, his first and last name. He's the, he's the prosecutor, correct? Ed Hanrahan was a very ambitious prosecutor in Chicago. He was the heir apparent to Mayor Daly at that time. He was very political. He created his own gang unit and he declared the Panthers a gang. Uh, and, so he was running on a tough law and order uh, uh, policy or platform. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had made various racist statements about black people and black gang members that had alienated the black community, but he was still seen as the rising star in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, so Hammerhan put pressure. Fred Hampton got... Uh, a sentence of two to five years and was sent to Menard. That's when my office got directly involved. We went and interviewed people who knew him growing up in Maywood. Uh, and so we got people to vouch for him and we got affidavits and we got him out on our PO bond in August. Mm. Let me go back a little bit. Fred Hampton's family uh, had migrated to Chicago from Haynesville, Illinois in the 40s, like many others. Uh, his mother was a, a, a foreman in the uh, at a uh, at, in the union and was very active. And his dad also. They lived in a middle class or actually a working class suburb of Chicago, and that's where Fred grew up. And I think a couple of the things that were most interesting about Fred was when he was 10 years old. He, some of the kids in his neighborhood didn't get enough to eat, so he brought them all over to his house when he was 10. Uh, and I, I used to, to for breakfast, and he used to buy the food and cook it. Wow. And I used to, started his own Breakfast for Children program. Wow. And so I had early on had a speech defect. And so in order to overcome that, he became really glib. And he started listening to not only the minister where his parents went to church, but he memorized the uh, speeches of Malcolm X and, and Dr. King. And so he sort of became the king of the nines or somebody said nobody took on his mouth. But he was a beautiful orator, <laughs> a very powerful person <laughs> and had a sense of humor, too. So I think sometimes we we uh, objectify leaders and wonder where they came from and how did they get to be. His mother was a very, very strong person, mm. uh, brought a lot of strength and history from the South where she and her husband uh, came from. Anyway, that's how Fred's family ended up in Chicago. Okay. Uh, so Fred comes out, uh, uh, we get him out on an appeal bond and he gives a, a speech. And the first time I see Fred is I and my law partner, Flint Taylor, were in the audience when he gave this very powerful speech at the People's Church. And 
I just uh, a, a, a couple of the things that he said there had a tremendous impact on me. Uh, I think he, he said, if you ever think about me and ain't going to do no revolutionary act, forget about me. I don't want myself on your mind if you're not going to work with the people. <laughs> if you're asked to make a commitment at the age of 20 and you say, I don't want to make a commitment at the age of 20, only because of the reason that I'm too young to die. I want to live a little longer than you're dead already. Mm. You have to understand that people have to pay a price for peace. If you dare to struggle, you dare to win. If you dare not struggle, then damn it, you don't deserve to win. Let me say peace to you if you're willing to fight for it. Let me ask so you, let me, saying, let me jump in here just one second. Yeah, you mentioned in sure. your book that you had, um, uh, were, in the reserve, were in the reserves or you were potentially going to be drafted for Vietnam. I forget exactly what the deal was. Were, was this, uh-huh. like you, you, were you already potentially draft material when you first were listening to Fred Hampton's speeches or was that later? No, I had, uh, between college and law school, I didn't quite, I graduated college a little early. I hadn't applied to law school or anything. And so the, the issue of the draft was facing me. So I went into the thing, they had a program where you can go into the reserves for six months and then, uh, have five and a half years where you have meetings where you're an active reserve. Okay. So base, I didn't know anything about hardly the, the, the Vietnam war. I just thought this is a way to get over my possibility, uh, being drafted. Mm-hmm. So when I heard Fred speak, I was in the reserves at that point. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, in Chicago. Um, but then I'm in this audience. It's primarily black, but there are quite a few other people I knew from SDS and the Rainbow Coalition. And Fred had us stand up. Uh, he said, everybody stand up. And, and I did. And then he said, uh, he told us all to raise our right hand and, and repeat, I am. And we responded, I am. He then said, a revolutionary. And some of the audience repeated a revolutionary. I considered myself a lawyer for the movement, but not necessarily of the movement. Yeah. The word revolutionary stuck in my throat. Again, Fred repeated, I am, and the audience responded in kind. This time when he said a revolutionary, the response was louder. By the third or fourth time, I hesitantly joined in. And by the seventh or eighth time, I was shouting as loudly and enthusiastically as everyone else. I am a revolutionary. He converted you in one meeting. He converted me. Well, I was certainly leaning, but <laughs> it actually was a big step for me yeah. and I think for everybody there. And uh, this was in August of 69. And another thing he d- is he ended up saying, I believe I was born not to die in a car wreck or sleeping on a piece of ice or of a bad heart. I'm going to be able to die doing the things I was born for. I'm going to believe I'm going to die high off the people. Mm. I believe I'm going to die as a revolutionary in the international proletarian struggle. So let me, um, yeah, let me ask you and you can use, you can either refer to something that he's said, or you can just use your own estimation on this. Um, and, and I'm kind of going, you mentioned that he, was uh, he'd read Malcolm X, he'd read Martin Luther King, he'd read uh, Mao Zedong, he had read probably Che Guevara. I don't remember that specifically from the book, but there is a post. I mean, there's a picture in your book of him and uh, Bo- uh, Bobby Rush. Is that right, Bobby Rush? Right. 
um, in front of a wall and there are a bunch of posters of all these revolutionaries on it. So my question, and you don't have to go into a huge amount of detail because I really want to get to the conspiracy behind his assassination. Uh But do you think that Fred Hampton was like an actual, like, I don't know, I don't want to use the word Marxist because it's really tainted, but that's the word I'm going to use because I don't want a different one. Or was he a guy who was just looking for whatever he could find to help his community get out from what get get out from under what they've been under for so terribly long. Well, I don't know that's an either or situation. Okay, that's fair. I think Fred would say uh, we do need. He he was well aware of the conditions of black people in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, and the, so were the Panthers who set up specific survival programs. Mm-hmm. But they also felt that a larger change needed to happen. A revolution had to happen where power was not controlled by the people with the money, uh, that somehow power to the people. And it's certainly partly a a class issue, Mm -hmm. a race issue. Uh, It's still being uh, discussed, obviously. Sure. Um, So I think he believed believed we needed revolutionary change to change the situation of black people uh, beyond individual gains. Okay. So I think he, uh, I, you know, I think he, so this is the late 60s and uh, revolutions were happening all over the world. Right. It seemed uh, what the Panthers were saying and even a little bit of what we thought in the 60s in the United States was we we're going to have some kind of egalitarian revolutionary revolution. Uh, and so Fred and many of us felt we were part of that international movement. Mm. So we borrowed from Che and we borrowed from uh, the struggles in Africa and China and, you know, uh, many of the leaders, uh, their sayings, their politics. Uh, so I think Fred was he had been head of the NAACP youth group in Chicago. Right. He had led marches to get swimming pool and a recreation center for blacks. So it, it was a sort of a, a development of how we're going to deal with local issues, how we're going to deal with issues facing black people, and what are the biggest worldwide issues? What what kind of changes do we need? And the dude was uh, so only like 20 years old when all this was going on. And that is the he, astounding thing to me is how young this guy was. I think people, and I, unfortunately, I don't think that that's one thing that doesn't come across in the movie so much is he was 21 years old when he was killed. Yeah. He's 19 and 20 when this is going on. Uh, and so uh, maybe there isn't the thoughtful years of reading and contemplation that would come with somebody 10 years later, but there was incredible youthful jubilance Mm -hmm. and charisma and energy and hopefulness that he uh, just, you know, passed on to everybody around him. And so he was, he was a really dynamic young man. And not only because he could speak because there are other people, but when he said to people, show up at the breakfast program at six o'clock. We got to cook the food. We got to serve the food. We got to entertain the kids. We got to talk to their moms. He was there. He was doing it. If, mm-hmm. if you were told to sold your quarter of newspapers, he was out in the street doing that. So Fred lived the life that he 
talked. And so that was another reason why I think he had so much respect. Gotcha. You're listening to Uncommentary, and we'll be back right after this. Hey, folks, here's a quick reminder to become a patron for Uncommentary. The $2 and $3 levels are soon going away. Not that they're going to disappear, but they'll be full. Uh, They're capped. So if you'd like to become a sponsor right now, I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and go ahead and grab one of those remaining spots at the $2 and $3 level. It won't be long before $5 will be the minimum. And uh, I hope to have a lot more sponsors going forward. I thank you for every single person who already is and ask that you would consider doing that because it really does help alleviate some burdens, uh, cover some expenses, and occasionally be able to go out to eat or something like that. So um, if you can, do, and I'll be greatly appreciative. And don't forget to share, rate, and review in your favorite podcast app. Uh, That exuberance and and the power of his speech, uh, unfortunately, got him on the radar of uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. And uh, in a plot, well, first of all, they inserted an informant into the Black Panthers, and then that led to, uh, I guess, surveillance and all of that. And eventually, uh, in conjunction with the Chicago Police Department, there was a raid executed uh, in which a bunch of things happened, uh, one of which was Fred was killed by a police officer, uh, apparently while he was asleep. That's what you found. And uh, I think right. that's what was suspected at the time, as a matter of fact. So give us a snapshot kind of into that night, and then we'll move from there into kind of what you discovered along the way about what really happened. Right. I had been at the Panther office uh Two days before, the Panthers had decided to purchase the building because there had been three police raids and the building had been shot up and set on fire. So they were not good tenants. So they figured the only way they could stay there is by the building. So I had seen Fred and went over there. And as I said goodbye, I was, he stood at the top of the stairs and said, power to the people. And this was on Tuesday night. And I said, I'll be back in two days with the contract and we can complete this. That was Tuesday. Wednesday I Wednesday night I had to stay up developing a housing proposal. So at 6.30 in or 7.30 in the morning on that Thursday, there's a knock on my back door. And it's my law partner, Skip Andrew, who said, the chairman's been murdered. Uh, the pigs raided his apartment this morning. Mm. And I looked at Skip and I'd just seen Fred, who seemed bigger than life. And it was very hard for me to contemplate this person who gave us so much energy and i sort of stammered well and and skip said well i'm going to go to the uh with with to identify the body and then to the apartment and i said what do i do he said well i think you should interview the survivors who weren't shot so uh i did that that morning and i uh on the way i learned the radio said that the Police had executed a warrant at the Hampton apartment, uh, and they'd been met by a hail of gunfire. And the officers were saying that, that luckily that none of them were were hurt. And it turned out Fred Hampton was killed, and another Panther, Mark Clark, was killed. Four Panthers were shot. Uh, one Doc Satchel, a uh, machine gun bullets up and down his colon. Uh, and there were three people, including Fred's fiance, who were at the police station. So the morning of December 4th, about four hours after the raid, I interviewed Fred's fiance, Deborah Johnson, 
uh, now Nikola Akua Najeri, who was in bed with Fred that morning. And she said, the police, the pigs came in firing. And after a while, there was a, a ceasefire after a long, a lot of gunfire. We're in the back bedroom. For some reason, Fred didn't wake up. I shook him and he said, the police pulled me out. And then I heard, saw two police go in and say, one said, is he dead yet? And I heard two shots. And then the other one said, he's good and dead now. Mm -hmm. So she described to me an execution. Uh, and so, so did the other two survivors who had also been in the apartment. So what happened is when I, when we gathered that evidence, the Hanrahan's version, and these were police assigned to Ed Hanrahan, the prosecutor, to a special prosecution unit. So Hanrahan is holding a big press conference with the weapons that he said he confiscated for the Panthers. And he said the Panthers and Fred Hampton in particular had opened fire on these policemen, unknowing that they were in a Panther apartment. And luckily they survived. Mm. And that was the official police story on December 4th. But and how, we, how long did that remain the official police story? It didn't change. Oh, what, wow. What that was the, the police official police story didn't match the physical evidence yeah. and the trajectory of the bullets. The one kind of strange thing, uh, even to this day, is they didn't seal the apartment. So Skip and a couple of my other law partners went there with a filmmaker, with a minister, and started picking up. Uh, the physical evidence, the uh, gun casings, mm -hmm. the bullet, the bullets. And we also put dowels in the wall that showed the trajectories. And so while Hanrahan was telling this story, that all the physical evidence and the trajectory showed there were 90 shots coming in. And the only shot coming out was a, probably a reflexive shot from Mark Clark, who was at the front door, because it went directly up into the ceiling. Mm -hmm. It didn't go as if you were trying to shoot someone. So that's the physical evidence, and it didn't fit with what Hanrahan was saying. But Hanrahan kept trying to press his case. He set, took a picture of the back door uh, that had two dots in it and told the Tribune that it ran a big exclusive. This is the two shots that Fred Hampton fired at the police coming in the back. We brought the press over there looking at it, and those two black dots were nail heads. Mm. So Hammerhand's story began to come apart, and the public began to see it, and the Panthers led the community through the apartment. They could see the blood-soaked mattress. They could see the direction of the bullets, and they could understand the story of what happened. Mm. Uh, all the bullets except that one came from the trajectory of the police towards the Panthers. Mm. So the story didn't match. Even though they charged the survivors with attempted murder, they had to drop that case because it was based on two shotgun shells with the police lab saying it came from a, a Panther weapon, but in fact it came from a police weapon. Wow. So at some point after this, um you begin to find out, um, and I don't know, you can, you can elaborate whether this is from your investigation or part of your investigation, uh, as you kept looking into this over the, over time that, um, the FBI was involved, uh, co Intel pro, and you can explain what that is, was involved. Um, and that there is a reason to call this an assassination, not simply a, a killing or a botched police raid. Exactly. Well, 
After the charges were dropped against the survivors, we piled a civil rights suit against Hanrahan, the crime lab, the, the phony investigation they did. And this was in 1970. We drew a uh, crusty old uh, judge from Alabama who hated the idea of who the Panthers were and made life as hard as he could uh, for us for the next few years. But in the course of discovery of documents uh, in this process, we and, and because of a burglary at the FBI office in Pennsylvania, we discovered there was a program called COINTELPRO, a, a secret clandestine FBI program that targeted the movement and in particular the black movement. And the biggest threat, as J. Edgar Hoover had said, was the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. And pursuant to this COINTELPRO program, the church committee was discovering documents that said we must do everything to disrupt, destroy, and, dis and, and neutralize the Panthers by any means necessary. These are their own words. Mm. These are the memos they sent out to, to FBI offices around the country. And they also had a, uh, a directive, uh, which was prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the black masses. And so they mentioned that Dr. King, uh, it, it, when they wrote this, could have been such a person. Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X would have been, uh, but he was assassinated, Stokely Carmichael. So they had this targeted program. So we wondered, is, and at the same time it came out because he was involved in a murder, uh, William O'Neill, who had been head of security in the Panthers in Chicago, admitted that he was an FBI informant and had been one for many years. That was his defense to the murder, that he was infiltrating someone else mm. who had killed someone, a bunch of gang, uh, 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 a bunch of uh, drug dealers in Gary. This had nothing to do with the Panthers, but he was exposed that he had been an informant in the party. Mm. So again, is there a connection between the FBI and the raid? We pursued discovery. You know, we asked for all the documents, all the, uh, and, and take depositions. And this U.S. attorney uh, going against the wishes of the FBI turned over this document to us Monday in the middle, two or three years later after we filed a suit. And it was a floor plan of the apartment where Fred and Deborah and other people were the night of December 4th, the morning of December 4th when the raid happened. Mm. And this was a floor plan that the FBI obtained. O'Neill went in and got the floor plan, including where the furniture was, and it even showed the bed where Fred Hampton and Deborah Johnson would be sleeping. There was a notation on it. We got this document, which was pretty close to a smoking gun, or at least the uh, led to other documents. Uh, so we said, we think this, the FBI, and also we learned that the FBI took that floor plan to Hanrahan's police and they had that floor plan when they executed that raid. Wow. So they knew where Fred would be sleeping. And when we sort of charted the direction of the bullets, they went toward that bed, which was marked on that diagram. Mm. So we continued to push. We got other documents uh, showing that the FBI had tried to set up uh, friction between the head of the Blackstone Rangers, Jeff Ford, and Fred. 
And then we even got a document of the bonus document where they gave O'Neill after the raid a bonus saying that his information had led to the raid and was invaluable. Wow. So while publicly the FBI was denying it had anything to do with it internally, they were taking credit for it and rewarding FBI agents. My goodness. That's the evidence we had or developed. And we started a trial in 76 and we were 18 months on trial, uh, getting some of this evidence, facing a hostile judge. Uh, we were two young white lawyers working with an establishment black lawyer, uh, and we were in court. And a whole some of these documents didn't come out to the middle of the trial. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at documents and trying the case. Both my partner and I were held in contempt. Both of us spent time in jail because the judge in front of the jury <laughs> had us taken away. Uh, I asked a witness a question, and the question was about ha asking Hanrahan when he was on the stand, did he collude with the FBI? And the judge said, he objection. He, he didn't even wait for an objection. And the, I said, judge, the judge objected? The judge objected. <laughs> Good grief. And, I and, he, and, he, and I said, sort of spontaneously, Judge, you can't cover up the cover up. Yeah. <laughs> he said, Mr. Hollis, you're in contempt. And he had the marshals grab me and <laughs> put me in the MCC for the night. So, yeah. And most alarmingly, after 18 months of trial, while the jury is deliberating, and the judge had hoped that they would find for the defendants because he'd given them a set of instructions. That basically said the police had the right to kill them if they had anti-police rhetoric or if they had illegal weapons, which wow. is not the you can't murder someone for speaking out against the police or even having an unregistered weapon. Right. Uh, uh, when the jury looked like it was hung, he dismissed our case with prejudice, if, and he assessed costs against us of a hundred thousand dollars, and that was after eight years. Mm. So we were pretty downtrodden. We remembered what Fred had said about Dare to Struggle. And we filed an appeal. And we got the court reporter to give us, uh, to let us pay the 30, for the 33,000 page transcript uh, on time. And we wrote a brief sort of, uh, setting forth the evidence, uh, which in a heavy, heavy way, we signed power to the people. <laughs> And, you know, sort of nothing left to lose is grace, you know. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. So anyway, we argued it. We got a good panel. And eventually the higher court reversed everything Perry did. He mm. said there was more than enough evidence to go to the jury on conspiracy. The FBI had hit evidence mm. that because of the circumstances, Flint and my contempt were overturned. And he made really good law on conspiracy. Wow. Uh, eventually, 1983, 13 years later, we settled the case and we got $1.85 million for the families of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and for the survivors of, of the raid. Wow. So it was quite a, a legal issue. We uncovered a great deal about the government. Uh, even two years ago, some new documents came out that showed that what was going on in Chicago was being uh, watched very carefully by people at the top, Hoover and his top associates. 
because we didn't have that, we wanted to bring in and see when Nixon, if he knew, or John Mitchell, his attorney general, yeah, yeah. knew about this, when they were told. We couldn't get that far because the judge wouldn't allow us to bring them in as defendants. Wow. Um, so we still don't know how high up some of this stuff was either ordered or, or acknowledged. Wow. <clears throat> and Physical evidence also, in addition to what Deborah told me, Fred was killed by two parallel bullets to the head at short range, coming from upward, downward, as someone would if he were lying in the bed. So the physical evidence of his injury was consistent with a an assassination, mm -hmm. with them knowing where he'd be sleeping and with what Deborah told me. Wow. This is, um, I mean, fascinating is the right and the wrong word um you're telling and your conciseness and being able to explain this is utterly fascinating the story is is just heartbreaking and revolting in so many ways um i have a we're we're nearing the end of time but i do have a couple of questions one is not related okay. and one is uh the one that's not related is this in the movie the trial of the chicago seven the judge is a nut did did you know of him and was he a nut Yes and yes. And he was one floor down from our judge, who was not quite well, we called our judge uh, an activist seeking combat. He was that hostile to us. Mm. And Hoffman took made himself a primary character in the Chicago case. So Hoffman had his own idiosyncrasies. But, you know, in particular, his wanting to take on. And, of course, the defendants were very effective in taunting him, getting him to do. Right. Uh, we had a day in front of Judge Perry, and we knew that Perry would deny anything we asked for. So we sort of set him up. He One day he's railing at me, Mr. Hodge, you want everything. And I said, no, I don't, Judge. I just want a fair trial. And he said, you're not going to get it. Wow. And that court reporter took that down and that's the way we are brief opening. You're not yeah. a brief. You're not going to get a fair trial. So I think in many ways, Hoffman was also uh, willing to rise to the occasion to insert him, himself in the case. He had a little different personality than, than our judge Perry. They were the same age. Uh, and I think Hoffman felt, personally offended by who the defendants were and they were very effective of course at getting his goat yeah. and uh, we weren't yeah I, I, in many ways we had to take on the judge just to get the evidence in yeah so there were definitely similarities and then here's the question that is related and this is the one i mentioned in my email that i would ask <clears throat> so um i don't think i told you that i've been a pastor a baptist pastor for years and years and years and so the podcast is my hobby and I just enjoy talking oh, to people and hearing their stories. And so, uh -huh. um, I kind of get a sense of justice from, you know, what I read in the scriptures, both the old and the new testaments. And, and I, I've come to, um, you know, appreciate some of the struggles in the sixties were genuine seeking, genuinely seeking justice. I, I don't know that I would have, would have agreed with everything everybody did, but I can certainly see that there was a moral vantage point that so many people were operating from. So my question for you is, um, what is your, what's the moral vantage point that you operate from that kind of frameworks justice for you? Because you obviously have a huge lifelong passion for it. Um, well, 
I think I came from a liberal Jewish background in Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, where we were taught about certainly being Jewish gave us a sense of identity with oppressed people. Okay. Uh, if we understood our history that way, and that never again meant never again to anybody, not just to Jews. And so there was an identity with black people and black people's struggle and black people's oppression. Mm. Uh, and that continued. And you mentioned the moral issues. And obviously, Dr. King was a tremendous influence on all parts of the movement, not only because he had this spiritual background and he got so much strength from from being uh, a, a religious person, but that he called out uh what he said, uh, materialism, mm. imperialism, uh, and militarism, and racism were the enemies, you know? Mm-hmm. So justice somehow was both dealing with individuals who were uh, harmed, but also trying to take on those bigger issues. Uh, how do we deal with uh, racism in this country? How do we deal with the wars? At that time, if you were young in the 60s, all of a sudden, why are we napalming people in Vietnam mm-hmm. who want to liberate their country? Uh, you know, and when Dr. King, and it was in Chicago where he first came out against the Vietnam War, mm. uh, which was not to his advantage politically, right. he was criticized for it. But nevertheless, he said morally, I can't stand up for people who are oppressed here and ignore what the U.S. is doing in another country. Mm. And I think that moral sense uh, uh, was very much connected with our energy to to try to change things, to try to create a more egalitarian society, to try to overcome the inequality, the militarism. Um, And I think those things uh, affected you know, all aspects of the movement, and certainly not all aspects of the movement were religious. There was a very strong religious part of the anti-Vietnam uh, War yeah. and also the rights struggle. Uh, but we came together around these issues at that time. The book is The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther by Jeff Haas, who's my, been my guest today. Uh, man, I just want to tell you again how much I appreciate your time. This has been like super enlightening, and I can't wait for people to hear this. Well, I appreciate it too. As I said, they'll hear two southern accents uh, from the same vicinity. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for the interview. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from UncommentaryPodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Mm-hmm.